Well, 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 good morning to everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, see if anybody knows this one. Peace be with you. All right, we have some, some liturgy coming back at us. Um, peace. We're going to talk about that a lot uh, when we do communion today. Um, talk about our peace with God and our peace because of our peace with God, our peace that we can enjoy in our relationships with others, and ultimately the peace we can enjoy in our heart. And that's going to factor in today's sermon. We're going to talk more about it afterwards during communion. And then we're going to have the kids up, and they're going to sing some songs for us. It's going to be great. Um, so I'm glad you're here this morning. We are going to be in Scripture today. Uh, we didn't sort of deviate from our, our, our walk through the book of Acts to do something special for Christmas. And I'm always glad we don't do that. I always resist that urge to just sort of like veer off and go topical because I think I know what God wants us to preach on. But it just so turns out that in the book of Acts, it's exactly what we need to hear today. So I'm excited about that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 37. That's what John read earlier. If you'd like to, you can grab a Bible from the resource table and flip over to Acts chapter 4, the second half. To, to kind of put it in context for you, last week, if you were here with us, we looked at how the religious leaders in Jerusalem ultimately felt threatened by the power of God and by the, the, the proclamation, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. They felt threatened by it. So they convened the council and they thought, well, what are we going to do about this? We can't deny what's happened, uh, these miracles that were taking place. So what they decided to do was they felt threatened by the gospel. So they in turn threatened and tried to intimidate the gospel preachers, the apostles and these early Christians in the early church. And of course, uh, we'll see how that went today. Today we're going to look at how the early church responded to those threats and to that intimidation in particular, but in the broader context of our passage, we're going to look at how the early church responded and how we ought to respond today and how we can respond today through our faith in Jesus Christ to adversity in general. So we're going to look at those specific threats and we're going to look at adversity in general. And adversity, I don't have to convince you of this, that's something that we all face at times. And I, I said that particularly in a particular way, that adversity is something we face because the, the original Latin word from which we get the, the English word adversity, it literally means to have something set opposite us or turned toward us. It's to have something facing us down as we make our way through life. And it you know, gets translated various ways, but opposition being one of the primary ways that that word gets translated. So it's something that is in front of us, it's, 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 it's looking at us, it's, it's contrary to where we're heading, so to speak. Uh, and, and so adversity happens when, whenever, think about it like this, whenever something or someone appears to be set in opposition to our life's progress, at least where we want to go, when we want to go there, and all of a sudden we hit a roadblock, that's adversity, and it's facing us down. Uh, it's an obstacle to our plans and purposes in life. That's where we feel that sense of, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of adversity. That's where it hits us when we think it's, a, it's an obstacle. And this could be anything. This could be an economic downturn or unforeseen financial expenses. This could be uh, a house fire uh, or a herniated disc, uh, a woodworking accident. I was talking uh, to John about that today. Uh, the early stages of pneumonia, we're praying for Amy right now. She went in with some chest pains this week uh, and was diagnosed with pneumonia. It could be friction in our relationships. I don't care what kind of relationships, they all can have friction. Uh, a frustrated 
or frustrating spouse, uh, a disobedient child, a, a physical disability, uh, getting passed over for that promotion at work, uh, a seller accepting a higher bid on the house of our dreams. I mean, just think about all the things that we can face in life that we would call adversities. Um, Dictionary.com defines adversity. Listen to the word that gets repeated so often in this. It defines adversity as unfavorable fortune, conditions marked by misfortune, or an unfortunate event or circumstances. You hear that? Fortune, fortune, fortune. That's dictionary.com. The Bible never speaks of adversity in, in terms of mere fortune or misfortune. Adversity in Scripture is always spoken of in the context of our relationship with God. It's always linked inextricably to our faith in God, a life of faith in God, and to God's faithfulness, which oh so often gets revealed in our lives amidst what? Amidst adversities. So if we think of adversity in terms of our misfortune, merely, rather than God's faithfulness in our lives we will ultimately become overwhelmed with a sense of despair. Again, I don't have to convince you of that. You've probably experienced that to some degree throughout your life. But if we turn to God in our adversity, and this is what we're going to look at today, if we turn to God in our adversity, he will show us the way forward, which will lead through that temporary adversity, not around it, but through that temporary adversity, most often, on the way where? On the way to our eternal reality. And that's why Paul talks about seeing the, the sufferings of this present age as, as terrible as they can be, the adversities, as difficult as they can be, always in the light of eternity, always in the light of glory, always in the light of the fulfillment of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of uh, a 1989 classic children's book that we've read to our kids. It's going to come up on the screen. Maybe you've read it. If the kids were in here, I'm sure plenty of them have read it. But it's called uh, Going on a Bear Hunt. We're going on a bear hunt. Michael Rosen, or Rosen, uh, a writer from the UK, I believe. So this book, and it was a classic for us. We read it over and over again. And part of the good... The good thing about the book is that you can use like onomatopoeia and you can use sound effects and you can really get into it. So we used to do this with our kids. But it's the tale of these, I think it's four children and a dog. But these children are facing all kinds of adversities while they go on this uh, so-called bear hunt. And uh, if you've read the book, you know some of these adversities. They come to long, wavy grass. They come to a deep, cold river, thick, oozy mud. That's my favorite. A big, dark forest, a swirling, whirling snowstorm in a narrow, gloomy cave, and ultimately face-to-face with the bear. Uh, And at each of those obstacles, we hear this repeated refrain throughout this children's book. When they come to the obstacle, they say, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, you know, that's our kids, oh no, we've got to go through it. And it repeats that at each obstacle. And you know what? As I think about my life as a Christian, as I think about our lives as Christians, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, it reminds me of this book because ultimately our lives, hold, they bear out the same truth, right? The, the point is not to avoid all adversity. That's what the commercials tell us, that somehow we can escape all adversity, that we can live this pristine life with zero tensions and zero difficulties and zero 
whatever, adversities, right? But that's not this life on this earth right now. So I'm reminded of this, this truth in this children's book that is true in our lives. It's that we're not supposed to go over it or go under it or somehow get around it or go a different direction. The path that God is leading us in this life sovereignly and lovingly and gracefully is a path that leads us to adversity, but also it leads us to walk through adversity, but not on our own, always with God's help. So to put it simply, the Christian life leads to adversity, but it also leads us through adversity. The Christian life leads us to adversity. Please don't give up on God because you you come face to face with adversity that's staring you down. This Christian life, all lives, but I'm speaking in terms of our Christian faith, we will be led to adversity, but by God's grace, we will will be led through it as well. And just like those four bear-hunting children in the children's book, God gives us, He gifts us with Christian community, with the fellowship that we experience with other Christians in the body of Christ, in order to face that adversity together. We don't ever have to face it alone. Neither did those kids. They were always together, facing those adversities together. So I, I, I exhort us, I exhort, I admonish myself to not lose that unity that we have in Christ, to not lose sight of it and to always remain unified in our hearts and minds. And we're going to see that in today's passage. Today's passage in Acts chapter 4 shows us how the early church faced adversity, not like everyone else in the world, but how they faced adversity with Christian unity through two things. Single-minded prayer amidst threatening opposition. We looked at that last week. Single-minded prayer amidst this opposition, these threats. And and secondly, wholehearted provision to meet the needs of fellow Christians facing adversity. Those were defining characteristics of the church, not just in today's passage, but throughout the New Testament, throughout the Acts of the Apostles. Single-minded prayer, wholehearted provision. That's what we're going to look at today in our passage. So, Together, we must face adversity with single-minded prayer to God. That's one of the ways we demonstrate our unity in Christ. In the first part of the passage, we see how the early church prayerfully acknowledged the truth of God as found in God's Word. They acknowledged the truth together, unified in their belief that God is powerful, that God is purposeful, and that God is present, always present, amidst our adversities. So let's look at each of those in this first part with single-minded prayer. How did they pray? Well, first of all, we must be united in our belief that God is all-powerful. It reminds me when Elijah was on uh, Mount Carmel and it was Baal, you know, the false god, uh, versus the one true God of Israel, right? And they, they brought the sacrifices and and he, he, he was actually mocking these priests, hundreds of priests of Baal and, and Asherah. And uh, nothing happened. No one responded. And he's like, perhaps your God is awake or asleep or he's kind of nodded off on his you know, throne in heaven or he's gone on vacation. It's like maybe he went to the bathroom. You know, maybe he didn't hear your request. You know, our God is not like that. Our God is, uh, is all powerful. He doesn't come to a place where he goes, man, that's too hard. I'm out of here. I'm going fishing. Like our God is all powerful all the time. So look at verses 23 and 24 with me. It says, when they had been released, remember the apostles got arrested for preaching the gospel or, and for healing in Jesus' name. 
So it says, when they had been released, they went to their own, that is their own companions, and they reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Oh, I've got to fix this real quick. This is going to bug me. My timer is not set. It, it goes to sleep on my phone. Bear with me. I promise you, if I don't do this now, it's going to drive us nuts. All right. There we go. All right. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they got scared. They all ran away. They went to their cousin's house in Galilee. No, that's not what happened. And when they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And I love that phrase. They raised their voices to God. They're faced with adversity. They're faced with threats from powerful people in their society. And so they raised their voices to God with one mind, single-mindedly. And the first thing they agree on in their prayer is the fact that they know from Scripture and they know from their own life's experience to be true that the Lord God is, in fact, the all-powerful creator of the universe. There's nothing too hard for him. There's no obstacle, no adversity too big for our God. And this agreed-upon truth, like I said, it comes straight out of the Old Testament. It's in the law, in the book of Exodus. It's in the historical books, uh, in Nehemiah. It's in the, the writings, the Psalms, the poetry. Over and over again, this very quote that they quote shows up in the Old Testament to remind us. So first thing, united in our belief that God is all-powerful. Second, God is always purposeful. When we pray to God single-mindedly as the church, we have to keep in mind that God is always purposeful. There is not some mundane detail of your life that is outside God's purposeful, sovereign scope. He's always purposeful. Look at verses 25 through 28. It's talking about the Lord. And it says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said. Again, great inspiration of Scripture verse right there. This is how they understood the uh, Old Testament scriptures and later on the New Testament scriptures, that it was, it was these words spoken through these, these human vessels by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in this case, David. And he quotes uh, uh, Psalm 2. It says, Why were the nations insolent and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, that's Yahweh, and against his Christ, his anointed one. And they go on to say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, anointed Christ, Messiah, all the same. Your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, and who was gathered against him? Both Herod, the, the supposed king of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, along with the Gentiles, Remember the Roman soldiers and centurion and everybody and the peoples of Israel, God's people to do. Now, listen to this, to do whatever they wanted. Because God's not powerful enough, he's not sovereign. No, it says to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. This is a theme throughout the book of Acts and throughout the Bible. So again, the church acknowledges the truth of God's word by turning to Psalm 2. Guys, God's word has to inform our prayer life. That's how we become single-minded in our prayers, is by looking to God's word together and reflecting those truths in our prayers to God together. 
So they acknowledge the truth of God's word by, by going where? To Psalm 2. The very beginning of the Psalter, we see Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2 quoted. And that psalm was considered to be a messianic psalm, which, and, and that's a fancy word, that's a fancy phrase for a psalm that looked forward to the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah. It was a prophetic word about the coming Christ. And that's how they interpret it. And look forward to that coming Christ that we're celebrating at Christmas in the Incarnation. So these early Christians, they considered the adversity faced by Jesus Christ himself as a fulfillment. That's so important that it wasn't like some wise teacher, this historical Jesus that wasn't God. He was just this Jewish rabbi that kind of went around teaching some cool stuff, got on the bad side with Rome, got himself crucified, Taught some cool stuff, though. Too bad he died. Put in a tomb. Done. Right? That's not how they saw it. They understood that Jesus Christ was was the Son of God who is God. And they see the adversity that he faced in his suffering and death and burial, not to mention his resurrection, ascension, and ultimately his return. They saw that in the context of God's purposes, that God hundreds of years earlier had, pre, had, had announced that he had predestined for these things to occur. That's why Jesus time and time again tells people, don't you see in the scriptures, it says that the Christ has to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So he knew this, and they knew this. After his crucifixion and resurrection, they got it. This was a fulfillment, his adversity. And by connecting it to the adversity of Christ, this this ancient prophecy in Psalm 2, by by connecting it to their present circumstances in Jerusalem, where Jesus had just been crucified, they show how purposeful God had been in bringing about his desired outcomes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's so important that that it wasn't just this terrible thing that happened to our rabbi, that this was something that God had predicted for hundreds and even thousands of years and had, had, had known even before the creation of, of, of anything that this was going to happen and that God the Son was going to come down to earth and take on a body, not just to teach some cool stuff and that's it, but to take on a body so that he could give it up, sacrifice it in death through crucifixion for our sin. And, and seeing God's purposefulness in all those atrocities and adversities that Jesus faced helps us to understand that God is always purposeful, even in the worst of the adversities we'll face in this life. That's an important thing I want to harp on. And by the way, if you have a problem with, and I don't say this in a mean way, but if you have a problem with the doctrine, the teaching of God's sovereignty over the universe, God's sovereignty over creation, uh, in general, and predestination, predestining things to occur in particular, then you're going to have a problem with this verse and, and a whole bunch of verses in the book of Acts. Um, so I'll just throw it out there. And, if, and that's a tough one. And I know people wrestle with the issue of God's sovereignty and human freedom or human responsibility or culpability or whatever. If you want to talk about that, let's go get coffee and talk about that. But there's a clear teaching here that this is happening according to God's plan, not in spite of it, Okay. Okay, third thing. So he's powerful, he's purposeful, and the third thing is that God is actually present in all of our circumstances, including in our adversity, including in our suffering. Look at verses 29 through 31. It says, and now, Lord, so they've they've spoken what's true about God, that he's powerful and he's purposeful, and they say, and now, Lord, look at their threats and blow them up with lightning from heaven, right? That was his disciples. Like, should we just toast them with fire from heaven. He's like, you don't even understand. I came to save, right? Not to, 
I'm going to come back as the judge, but I came to save on this, on this round. No, they don't say that. They, I mean, just listen to what they don't say in this prayer. They say, and now, Lord, look at their threats and, and stop them from threatening us, stop them from persecuting us, stop them from throwing us in jail. No, if he had done that, Saul would have never been on the road to Damascus and become Paul, right? But what do they pray? They say, grant it to your bondservants, that's them, to speak your word. This is primarily the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, God responds. The place where they had gathered together was shaken. It's like an earthquake. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So at the beginning of verse 31, God reveals his powerful presence in the shaking. And this was a a theophany uh, where God appears in the Old Testament Oftentimes it was these rending winds and these fires and these earthquakes and all these really catastrophic natural events that signal the presence of God, that he's arrived, that he's present here, okay? And so that's what we see is that he has this powerful presence where he shakes the place where his pe- people are gathered. And it's not, it's not a fearful way like, oh no, you know, we're having an earthquake. It's like, oh, our God, this all-powerful sovereign Lord of the universe is here with us. What an incredible encouragement, right? And then at the end of verse 31, he reveals his presence another way. He reveals the presence of his Holy Spirit by the filling of his people. By the, the Spirit is in his people. We know that because when they trusted and then Pentecost came, the Spirit came and indwelled them. But now he does what the scriptures called, he fills them. In other words, complete control of their lives is given over to the Holy Spirit. And as they cede control of their lives to the Holy Spirit, as they are controlled by the Holy Spirit, what's the evidence of that? What's the fruit of that in this passage? It's that they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the evidence of the presence of the Spirit in their life. I love that. So just to summarize, to get through adversity, we must be single-minded in prayer, always acknowledging God's power, God's purpose and God's presence in our lives, especially in those times of adversity. Uh, Some of you were here at Wayside when we did this, but we used to meet together for global prayer gatherings, and we would usually meet at the home of John and Debbie Brandis, who are dear friends of ours. They used to be at our church with their kids. Uh, In fact, I I can't listen to that Hallelujah song, Kevin, you know the one, without thinking about uh, uh, Ellie, their daughter, who sang that when we were meeting at the Baptist Church uh, down the road. Uh, But anyway, we had these global prayer gatherings, and these were usually hosted at their home, and a bunch of us would just sit in their living room together. Sometimes there'd be six of us, sometimes there'd be 12 of us, and we would pray together single-mindedly with one mind. We would pray for people all across the world, all across the globe, and the prayers were so encouraging just to hear the words that people were praying in that living room for these people that they had never met across the world. It was so encouraging to hear. And those prayers in the Brandis' living room echoed exactly what we see in today's passage, that God is all-powerful, that he is purposeful, and that he is present in all of those faraway places that we prayed for. And one of the benefits of those global prayer gatherings was not just that we got to pray for people across the world. It was that in those prayer gatherings, 
they reminded us, the waysiders that, that convened for those gatherings, that God is just as powerful, just as purposeful, and just as present in our lives here in Greater Austin in the exact same way he's present in East Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and all the other locations we were praying for. He's just as powerful, purposeful, and present in our adversities as well. So guys, let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer me. Why don't we gather to pray this way more often? Why don't we do that? I'm guilty of it. I don't think, like, I I pray a lot. Most of my prayer is individual prayer, or it's with my family. But man, like, wouldn't that be cool if Wayside was just known as a church family that prays together all the time for all sorts of things? I mean, at the drop of a hat, we're getting together in a living room praying. At the drop of a hat, we're walking around a neighborhood praying. We're praying for people specifically going through tough times, people that that have never trusted in Jesus Christ before. I mean, this is, uh, we did it this morning with our boys, and it was so much fun. Trey and me and Mike and Chris would all sit around with the boys, and and we're just praying for all sorts of people and all sorts of stuff. But there's something beautiful about corporate prayer where we can pray together single-mindedly. And we could pray for foreign missions. I would love to start back up those global prayer gatherings. We could pray for uh, local issues going on, relationships with family, with friends, with neighbors. We could pray about all those things. Uh, in fact, Martin brought this up, but I hope you marked the, the Planning uh, with Purpose workshop. It's going to be Saturday, January 15th. And you know what we want to do? We want to invite everyone to do and challenge everyone to do is to fast and pray for two weeks. The first two weeks of 2022, we want to fast and pray together as a church for those two weeks. It could look a million different ways. Don't get all like, you know, oh no, fasting. I don't know what that is. Like we're going to send out some information. It's going to be great. But we would challenge you. Like it, we're going to send out the information, but it's basically an opportunity for corporate prayer and fasting as we prepare our hearts to trust the Lord in 2022. Because at the end of the day, what do we know we're going to face next year? Adversity. Adversity, yes. We know we're going to face it. I don't know what's going to happen with COVID mutations and all this stuff, right? But if we could start the year trusting God, maybe we wouldn't worry so much. Maybe we wouldn't be so fearful. Maybe we wouldn't be so anxious. So that's what we're going to invite you guys to do, and I hope you'll do it with us. Um, Why not start the year with single-minded prayer that acknowledges God's power, God's purpose in the midst of our adversity, and God's presence in our lives and the life of our church? Uh, So the first part of our passage demonstrates how single-minded prayer is an important part of facing adversity with unity in the church. But that's not all it takes. So let's shift to these last few verses. Together, we must also face adversity with wholehearted provision. And we are going to unpack this, and it's a beautiful thing. But we see it illustrated in our final five verses of today's passage. So Luke is going to begin this this little short section with a general description, and then he's going to show us a specific example. So the general description that he gives us in verses 32 to 35 shows us how the church as a whole provided for the needs of its members. And it's not the only place in the book of Acts where we see glimpses of this, but it's a really cool one. That we're going to look at. So let's look at verses 32 to 35. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, one hearted, one souled. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him or her was his own, but all things were common property to them. Is this communism? No. 
Nobody's forcing. There's not some government bureaucrat forcing these people to, all right, give up all your personal property. No, this is like, this is the fruit of God's spirit. This is the, the, the fruit born out of their understanding of God's love and grace towards them in Christ. So remember that. And then verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Now listen to this. For, and I want people to think, of, I, I want people to say this about Wayside and not just like, um, uh, what's the word where you, you act like it's a lot, but it's not really a lot. Help me out, English majors. Not uh, exaggeration, that's the word. It's not exaggeration. I want this to be true in every sense of Wayside Communities Church. It says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. So again, what, what do you hear in that passage at the beginning? You hear this language of unity in the early church, and it's so beautiful. They were praying with one mind, and then we read that those who believed were of one heart and soul. And, and this unity led to unbelievable generosity towards anyone in their community, in their church, facing adversity, any adversity, but poverty in particular in this context. And there were a lot of, of uh, poor people in the early church. A lot of the early believers didn't have much. And so they had to rely on other people's generosity. And so you see this self-sacrificial love displayed by the disciples. And guys, that was no less miraculous than the mention of the great power with which the apostles were, were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they were healing lame people, blind people, raising people from the dead. All these things were happening. But the incredible self-sacrificial Love and generosity shown by the church was no less miraculous than a person who had never seen for their entire life having vision or somebody who had never walked their entire life walking. It was no less miraculous. And I think that's the point of this context. Jesus himself, what did he tell him the night that he was going to be arrested? He said, a new commandment I give you to what? To love your neighbor? No. To love God? No. They had already said that in the Old Testament. He said, I give you a new commandment. To love one another. Who are the one another's? Specifically, who are those? They're one another in the church. They're his disciples. Does it mean you don't love your neighbor? Good Samaritan? No, not at all. Of course you love them. But he specifically says, this is how the world is going to know that I am who I say I am. By the way that you love one another. John 13, 35. So Luke then follows up this general description with a specific example of wholehearted provision in the early church. So look at our final two verses with me. It says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth from Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. I love his name. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And it says that this Barnabas character owned a tract of land so what did he do? He hung on to it as a nest egg, just in case, you know, the famine hit. No. He was led by God 
to sell that tract of land and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What that means is he just gave it to the church leaders and said, use it where it needs to be used. Uh, some people give donations to our church and they simply put on there, just use it wherever it's needed, you know. Or they give money to our benevolence fund. They say, just use it however it needs to be used. I love that. And this is such a simple passage, but it introduces us to someone who's going to become a key player in the expansion of the church and the spread of the gospel throughout uh, at least the first part of the book of Acts. And it reveals not, not this vague principle of generosity. Do you understand, like, this is a specific example from the other church. It's not just saying, oh, it's good to be generous. No, it's, it's, it's showing that generosity wasn't a vague principle to be loosely held onto by the early church. It shows that it was a practical, everyday reality in the life of the church, in the life of God's people. And that kind of wholehearted provision to meet the needs of others was a result of believing the good news that Jesus Christ had already sacrificed everything to meet our one greatest need, that is the need to be redeemed from our sin and reconciled to our Creator, to God the Father. And in light of that knowledge of the gospel that that Jesus had already given up more than we could possibly imagine, so too we as Christians, as followers of Christ, are to do the same in this life on this earth. And that's what led to these, these sorts of characteristics. So just like Christ, Christians... We must face adversity together, and we will face adversity together, but we must face it together with wholehearted provision for one another. Um, sometimes, I know this is hard to believe. Actually, it's probably not. Sometimes I really struggle with coming up with illustrations for passages. And I like ask Stacy, and I call some of y'all. I'm like, could y'all think of a, an illustration for the sermon? Because I, I can't. This week was not that week. Uh, I had no trouble. In fact, the problem I had this week was toning it down so that we could get out of here before like noon uh, in terms of illustrations of how this has worked out in our lives. Um, I told y'all this, y'all, most of y'all know this, but we had a house fire last Saturday. It was only seven days ago. Crazy to even think about that. Uh, But we had a house fire. We're out of our house. Um, Our kids are not in here. Uh, the house got demoed yesterday, like they ripped out the ceilings and the walls and the carpets and everything, and it's completely empty, and we probably won't be back in there for like 9 to 12 months or something like this. But anyway, this happened to us this week, and I promise I didn't start a fire in our house just to have a good sermon illustration. <laughs> I promise, I, I really, I didn't. Um, but, um, but I want to tell you something. That happened two weeks before Christmas Day, on Saturday, December 11th. And despite that house fire, I want to tell you something, and it's true, and you can look me eyeball to eyeball and know that it's true. I hope you can. It's that this Christmas, and I I say this 100% truthfully, that despite all of what's happened, this is shaping up to be one of the most restful, in the true sense of what rest means, one of the most worshipful, one of the most peace-filled, hope-filled Christmases on record for me and for the Brummett family. Maybe with the exception of when I asked Stacy to marry me on Christmas Day uh, 16 years ago. But, I mean, this, this is really shaping, and not just for me, I feel like for our whole family, for our, our community. Um, it's really been beautiful. And the only explanation for that reality 
is, is the single-minded prayer with which y'all and we together have been praying. The single-minded prayer that y'all have been praying for us as our, as our church, as our church family, as our community. But not just the single-minded prayer of so many people, but also the wholehearted provision that we have received from so many brothers and sisters in Christ. And frankly, it's gone beyond that. But let's just talk about our church family and, and the brothers and sisters in Christ in our community here in Austin the wholehearted provision with which you have cared for us has been staggering. I mean, you guys have come alongside us in our adversity this week to meet our spiritual needs, our physical needs, like literally physical labor, getting stuff out of a house, linens, right? Our financial needs, our emotional needs, our relational needs in a way that brings us to tears on a regular basis when we just stop long enough to think about it. It's overwhelming. The texts, the phone calls, the hugs, the prayers, the help disassembling swings and zip lines early Friday morning, the baked bread, the gift cards and checks to help cover unexpected expenses, the connections that you've made with people in these industries and in this community for us, the recommendations. The legal advice, the ethical advice, I mean, on and on and on. We have been so blessed over these past seven days. This past week, we have absolutely faced adversity. Probably some of the worst of, probably some of the biggest roadblocks, so-called adversities that we've faced in our life this last week. But we have been able to walk through it by God's grace and because of the wholehearted provision of God's people. And we thank you for that. And we thank God for that. I feel like I've been in a season this last year, years maybe, marked by various adversities. You guys have walked through all of them with us. Uh, but it's, it's taken a toll at times. And the elders encourage me to, like, um, to just go talk with a biblical counselor. If you've been around Wayside Long, you know that I think everyone needs to go to counseling. Uh, so there's no shame in that at Wayside. We're just like, have you been to counseling lately? You should go to counseling. Marriage counseling, personal counseling, whatever, right? And so I finally had to take some of my own medicine, and the elder's like, yeah, you should go talk to a biblical counselor. You've been through a lot. And so I did, and, and this church has supported me in that. And uh, I, was, I was talking to him the other day. It's been amazing. His name's John. But he said something um, that is so important to remember as we wholeheartedly provide for one another in the face of adversity. And this is what he said. He said it weeks ago, but it, 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 it kind of rang true this last week. He pointed out that when most of us think of serving others, what do you think about? You tend to think about, it's the alliteration, you've heard it around the church, it's your time, your talent, and your treasures, right? That's kind of how we think about it. And that is true. We should share all those things with people and serve other people in those ways. But, but what do we end up doing when we just think in those three categories? We try and steward our family schedules well or our personal schedules so we have more time to sacrifice for others. We, uh, we try and hone our skills and abilities and, and, and make use of them for the benefit of others. We try and steward our finances. But, but what my counselor pointed out, he wasn't saying you shouldn't do all those things, but he pointed out that what we should really think, that we should really think of not, not the time we have or the money we have or the abilities we have is the primary thing with which to serve others, but to think about ourselves as the primary thing by which we can serve others through self-sacrifice, to really think holistically about ourselves. And what he was getting at is he was trying to get me to take better care of myself. 
He was trying to get Stacy and I to take better care of ourselves so that we could serve others the way God intends for us to serve others. And he, he doesn't like the term self-care. You guys have heard that out there in the world. Self-care can so easily devolve into like just an excuse to selfishly do what you want to do when you want to do it. You've probably read some of that online. So he didn't talk about self-care, but he encouraged me to consider how I was doing in the area of self-stewardship. And again, I think this is pertinent because we're talking about wholehearted provision for the sake of others, wholeheartedly serving others' needs, right? So one of the things we can do to do that and apply this is simple self-stewardship. In other words, was I taking care of myself in terms of my physical health, my mental health, my relational health, and most of all, my spiritual health? Was I spending time with the Lord? Was I uh, embracing rest as an act of faith in God? Was I healthy in my relationships? Was I doing what I needed to do for my mental health? And that was a really good challenge. I challenge y'all as well, because it's true. We need to all become better self-stewards. And as we do that together as a church family, we're going to be able to provide better and better and better for one another as we face the inevitable adversities of life that are along our path. And uh, speaking of inevitable adversity, I'm going to close with a quote from a book. It's called Unnatural Causes. Uh, it's the subtitle something like The Life and Many Deaths of, you know, the UK's most famous forensic pathologist or something. It's this super famous forensic pathologist, Richard Shepard, who investigates cause of death and some of these things. His name's Richard Shepard. I don't know what his spiritual background is, but really respected, and he wrote this book. It's, it's got great reviews. It's kind of a true crime book. Some, some people are into that. Um, but, but this guy, throughout his career, had repeatedly seen, and when I talk about adversities, he had seen repeatedly, over and over again, the culmination of the most horrific atrocities you can imagine. And he was the one in there investigating it, why it happened, how it happened, what happened. And so he's inundated with atrocities and adversities. And yet, with all that, he's still able to write about joy. And this is the quote from his book. He writes, I am no stranger to joy. I know that joy can be truly experienced only by those who have known adversity. And then he says this, and adversity is an inevitability. In other words, we all face adversity. So then his point is that we can all experience joy. But that begs the question. This is why I don't know what his spiritual background is. That begs the question, how? How can we experience joy despite adversity? And I think today's passage answers that question by pointing to the unity with which the early church faced adversity together. They were single-minded in their prayers and in their understanding of who they were praying to. They were wholehearted in their provision for one another. And folks, in that dark, bleak world, they shined ever brighter all the time as they demonstrated those things. As followers of Christ, how we respond to adversity is one of the most significant and convincing ways to show the watching world the truth of the gospel, the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's when they will perk up and look at you when you face adversity because they want to test our mettle. They want to kick the tires. They want to see if this is legit, this hope that we have in Christ, this love and peace and joy that we've been talking about this Advent. And make no mistake, others are paying attention. Insurance adjusters are paying attention. Moving company managers are paying attention. 
neighbors on next door are paying attention, anyone and everyone who God sovereignly places along our path as he leads us to adversities and ultimately through those adversities. Um, We're not going to meet next Sunday, as we usually do. We're going to take off the Sunday after Christmas, um, but we are going to meet this Friday, and we're going to celebrate Christmas Eve, and we're going to celebrate that baby in the manger, the whole reason for which was to have a body that could suffer and die for our sins and rise again. We're going to worship together on Thursday. I hope you'll be there. If I don't see you there, um, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. I hope it's restful and worshipful and uh, and a Happy New Year's, and we'll see you in the new year, okay? Let me pray for us. Please bow your heads.